Blog Talk Radio. This is All About Wine, a show dedicated to the wine industry since 2009. Featuring winemaker, cellar master, vineyardist, and tasting expert, Ron. Basically, what we're trying to do on this program is just trying to educate people and trying to make wine less confusing and more friendly. From coast to coast and around the world. You know, we really have had some some neat people on the program. I, I just, I love that. Post your questions and comments during the live show on our Facebook page at www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. Again, that's www.facebook.com forward slash allaboutwinebtr. And now, All About Wine is on. Here's Ron. Hey. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Buzz. People. That's right. There he is. Are you getting, are you getting rain? Thanks, Buzz. People, be quiet now. I'm going to talk to Mike. <laughs> All right. There you go. Uh, <laughs> are you getting rain no, over there? Uh, no, not at all. Oh, yeah. I just. Uh, I wonder. We, we, Tampa Airport has gone 17 days. It'll be 18 at midnight tonight, 18 days without rain. And this is the 19 days without rain in the rainy season is the record. And we're sitting at 18. So it, no yeah. rain. It's wow. sitting the other coast. But it's supposed to come in this weekend, though. We're supposed to get wet all over this weekend. Yeah. Well, I had so, some yesterday yeah. in the past few days. But, uh, yeah, it's been raining almost every evening. But uh, nothing, nothing tonight yet. Yeah, we haven't we haven't had any rains at all for like you know getting close to oh. three weeks now. So wow. Uh, to answer your question before we were introduced, yes. it takes us about four hours to do a round of golf. With the three of us oh, guys, wow. sometimes we've been as long as five. When I've played by myself, I've done it in less than three, about two hours and forty five minutes. When I'm by myself. So anywhere in a stretch oh. between there, one day the three of us were out there, there was nobody behind us, nobody in front of us, and we took our time and took us almost five hours to play around. But, hmm. yeah, when, you, when you're not in a hurry. And well, I was just thinking that's you know, a really a good deal you had yesterday then. That's a, yeah, that you know, was. Good time that to was it took us about hmm. uh, just just about four hours yesterday. So it was good. It was really a good deal. So. But yeah. Yeah, welcome to All, right. All About Wine. Yay. We uh, we were talking about golf and sports a little bit before the show, and that's why. And they never give us enough time, so I had to finish up the question there before we forgot it. <laughs> you know, never enough time. <laughs> never enough time to talk before. Yeah. So, but uh, yep. <laughs> Thursday, July the second, twenty twenty. If you're live, you can always leave us messages. You can uh, make comments on the uh, page, or you can leave questions on email, which I probably won't see those until after the show because I check that out through the show. And on uh, uh, Twitter and uh, – no, there's a couple other videos Twitch. you can always leave. Yeah. Twitch. Okay, that's it. Twitch, Twitch there, Twitch. Uh, Mixer, Mob Crush, 
any of those, yeah. you can communicate with Mike, and we can get on. But if you're not live, you're not listening now, then welcome to Archives. We've got a lot of listeners on Archives, too, and we appreciate that out there. So as long as you're enjoying the show, that's what really counts. Tonight, let's see, what we got? Oh, day after tomorrow, 4th of July weekend, Independence Day, 244 years uh, we're celebrating. So it's getting close to the 250 mark. And I remember back when we country turned 200 and everybody's saying, no great country has ever survived, our great society has ever survived over 200 years. And everybody's worried and all that back in 1976 and here we are 244 and we're still going strong which is a debatable point among some people but we are still going strong so so uh let's see we've got a few things to talk about a few odds and ends things to talk about here i'm going to talk a little bit about the spotted lantern fly actually i'm going to talk quite a bit about the spotted and lantern, lantern fly we talked about it once before but it's time to revisit because the little pest is moving Moving, moving west, and so we can do that. But first, I want to talk about smoke taint. And to start that, I'm going to talk about the wildfires that are in the country. There's a few wildfires around. As of right now, none of them is really bothering vineyards. Uh, they're surprisingly rather small ones all over the place. Uh, there's one up in... Washington State, the uh, Devore Creek Fire, which is only 450 acres. Uh, one in southern Oregon, 156 acres. Uh, right at the border of California, Oregon, the Ward Fire, 1,300 acres. But most of them are pretty small. The, there are some over in Idaho that are bigger, uh, 4,394 acres at Cove Creek Fire. But overall around the country, uh, western part of the country, uh, there are uh, just uh, 34 wildfires burning right now. And furthest one east is in Oklahoma, and they're in Oklahoma and New Mexico, Arizona, Utah. There's four of them in Utah, Montana, Idaho, Washington, Oregon, and California. But up in Alaska, they've got some big fires going up there and creating a lot of smoke that's working its way down northern Canada and it's starting to work its way into the northeastern part of the United States. Maybe the wind shifts and stuff coming in with storms might blow those away, but big smoke problems across. Uh, the biggest fire up in Alaska is the uh, Let's see, is that the one? Let's see, I think that's the one, yeah. Is the Chalkistic Complex Fire, which has burned 505,273 acres so far, and it's still not contained. Uh, trouble is with those fires are out in the Alaska wilderness. They're up in the forest, and it's almost impossible to get to them. And so, therefore, just a matter of trying to keep them from getting too bad and spreading, but there's like five of them up in that area, ranging from 239,000 acres, 130,000 acres, 91,000 acres, and 41,300 acres, plus the big one I just told you about, 505,000, all in 
northeastern Alaska, blowing smoke, blowing smoke west and south. So it's something that needs to be keeping on. If they can control those fires, it's not going to affect the grapevines as they start getting ready to mature and stuff. But it's blowing down toward the northern United States and Toronto and Montreal and areas where there are grapevines all over there. So we'll see what happens on that. And the reason I wanted to bring that up about the wildfires is because I found an article here on... Uh, no, I don't want to take your survey. Get out of there. Uh, found an article here on I, oh, survey loading. Why don't they just listen to you when you tell them no? They just they don't listen to you. And let's see. There. Okay. Agencies are researching the smoke tank. The wildfires and after the disasters that hit California periodically in the 1890s uh, up to the 1980s have gotten stronger and more intensity and more acreage over the years. And so uh, lots of blocks of grapes have died on the vine as part of the fire's footprint. So since 1911, uh, a greater number of increasingly more severe fires have hit California, Washington, and Oregon. And it has caused an impact on the grapes because of smoke exposure. And um, it's, in fact, last year, I think was the first, or not last year, or was it last year? Yeah, last year was the first time some wineries were refusing to purchase grapes from their contracted growers because of fear of smoke taint. And you really can't tell until you're making the wine. So they've got different testing facilities and stuff like now. Uh, things like that now that says we can tell you if the grapes are tainted, if it's got smoke taint. But researchers are focused on developing and improving new risk assessment tools, mitigation measures, and management strategies in the vineyard looking for smoke exposure, which is chemical changes in the grapes and also, the consumer perception of smoke taint. Uh, it's Some people, you can get smoke taint, and you won't really notice it. But they're not going to release the details to their research until the end of summer, late summer. Uh, and they're going to come out with a white paper that will be sent out to the grape and wine industry and let them know. Uh, there is a $300,000 grant uh, from... Oregon State University to test the smoke taint in grapevines and find out what's going on, what's happening, and all that. So it is a collaborative effort that between California, Oregon, and Washington, the California Association of Wine Grape Growers is working with Oregon and Washington grape growing societies to find what they can on smoke taint. Excuse me. When smoke taint occurs, it could potentially put at risk thousands of acres. And these problems depends on variables of how strong the smoke is, the duration, time of year where it hits the growing cycle, fuel source, weather conditions, all this stuff comes into play. 
And so they're looking at all these possibilities and all these different ways that smoke taint does and can affect the grapes and therefore drawing up a uh, a model of what to expect if these conditions are like this, are your grapes going to be exposed to it and do you have to worry about it? All three states have suffered for multiple years impact of smoke taint and so they're really interested in getting something that they can look at and try to say, okay, this is what's going to happen because the smoke is there, the wind is here, climate's like this, the grapes are at this stage of development and all that. So we'll see what happens there. They're doing some extensive research. This is different than the research they're doing in Australia. Australia has been doing research on smoke tank for three or four years now, and they've came up with different different things. But this is just in the area of California, Oregon, Washington, and how smoke can be affected with those growing areas as opposed to other areas. So, okay. Next thing, a couple of quick ones here. Let me find. Uh, let me find this one here. Oh, this dropped down on me. Uh, new AVAs. There are some new ones popping up out there. I'm going to tell you about them. You all know what AVAs are. That's American Viticultural Areas. If you don't know what they are, then it's an area that is designated by the Trade and Tobacco Bureau as being unique for growing conditions and all that in the United States. Uh, not, not unlike the areas that they have in France and Italy and Germany and all that. We call ours the American Viticultural Area. Uh, there are two new AVAs, or three new AVAs that are being uh, right now. Oh, my engineer just bought me tonight's wine. Oh. It's 14 Hands Hot to Trot Smooth Red Blend. We've had this before, I believe, and this is really a nice wine. It's uh, from Columbia Valley, 14 Hands Winery. Uh, it says, aromas of ripe berries balanced with smooth flavors of black cherry and plum. Uh, it says... 14 hand uh, let's see well, no I can't oh okay I'm 14 hands wines are inspired by the unbridled spirit of the wild horses that once inhabited the Columbia River Basin and stood a mere 14 hands tall the train that gave these small horses their endurance and strength now feeds our vines. Our wines celebrate these horses, the heritage of the land they once roamed. That's all it says about it. just telling you a little story. Uh, what is this? 14, 14 hands. I thought it said 14 no, 15.5 alcohol by volume. Boy, this is up there. 15.5 alcohol by volume. 
doesn't say what the blend is, which always drives me nuts. I'd rather hear the blend than with a little story about the horses and the land. Uh, from uh, 14 Hands Winery in Patterson, Washington, Columbia Valley. Did I say Oregon? I don't think I said it. I said Columbia Valley, Oregon, uh, Washington, 14 Hands. Uh, let me get a taste of this and tell you what I think of it. Ooh. Nice dark wine. Oh, the plum does come out. They are right. Very seldom do I agree with what their assessments are on it, but that plumminess is really strong on that. They have a um, wine analysis on their website shows uh, predominantly Merlot and Syrah with oh. several other varietals in smaller quantities, including Cabernet Sauvignon, Pinot Noir, Zinfandel, Cabernet uh, Franc. My microphone's in the way. Uh, Petit, <laughs> Petit Verdot, uh, Mauverde, and uh, Grenache. Wow. Uh, Quite a potpourri of yeah. wine yeah. sauce into this. <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely. Um, it's very good, though. I just had a sip of it while while you were telling us about that, and oh. it's very good. It's not not real heavy, not real strong, but it's, it's definitely got that plumminess. Mm. That that's surprising because when things give descriptions, I usually don't get that right away. But yeah. this is very pronounced on the plum. It says uh, aging took place in a combination of stainless steel tanks. And neutral French and American oak for over 10 months to preserve fresh fruit flavors and further soften the wine. Oh, for more information. That just went down the wrong pipe with me. Oh. Oh. Yeah, I'm glad you were talking. I was choking. Uh, Oh. Oh, thank you. Uh, Yeah, that is good. It's it's, – you can detect the oak, but the oak is – very, very subtle, very soft in there. The acid is well balanced with the flavor. It's just not real acidic, probably because of the blends of all those grapes in there. I mean, they probably just maybe it said 14 hands, they were trying to get 14 grapes into the barrel. But uh, hot to trot, 14 hands, hot to trot, and smooth red blend. Actually, it's very good. I can't remember how much we paid for it offhand, but. Uh, this is very good. But Tim Munts and uh, stainless steel or oak, did you say? I was coughing. I didn't hear. Oh, um, aging took place in a combination of stainless steel tanks, neutral French and American oak for over uh, 10 months. Okay. Oak and French and American. Yeah. Okay. Because oak really yeah. isn't strongly pronounced in the wine. It's it's there, but it's got a good balance. But 14 hours. This is a 2015 vintage. Wow. I didn't know we had this. Wow. That's going back a few years. That's almost five years ago. Huh. If you find 14 hands hot to try, it's worth it's worth the, the buy and the try for all of you out there. Predominantly Merlot, but still not a Merlot wine. You can tell when you taste it. It's not a Merlot wine. So, oh, very good. Thank you. Uh, ABAs. I was just going to say, where is my little thing here that was telling about ABAs? 
the 29th, the new APAs. Oh, there we go. Comments are sought on new AVAs. They do this all the time. And I've told you before, whenever uh, area applies for an AVA, they always open up for comments from people. And so if you, you know, want to make a comment, you can do it. For some reason, you're against it or for it or something, or if you've been there before and you don't think an AVA is worth it, you can always comment. They say, okay. You can just go to TTB dot gov and go to the wine section and you can find where you make comments but through july 27th and all these so you got until almost the end of the month to make comments but the first one is a proposed establishment of the palos verdes peninsula agricultural area this is a 15,900 acre ava located in Los Angeles County. So uh, it's, it's a new one there. It is not within or contain any other established AVAs within its boundaries, which is unusual. A lot of the times when you get an AVA, it already has an AVA around it. But this one is a brand new one, 15,900 acres in Los Angeles County. It doesn't say where. You can probably... If you want to know exactly the boundaries and all that, you can go onto the website and find it there. It'll show you and tell you the boundaries and all that stuff. But the Palos Verdes Peninsula AVA in Los Angeles County. Also, there is a proposed establishment of the White Bluffs Viticulture Area. This is 93,738-acre viticulture area located in Franklin County, Washington. And it is entirely within the existing Columbia Valley AVA. So this is, excuse me, this is an AVA within an AVA. And they're taking comments on that. If you want to know the actual proposed, again, boundaries and everything, then you can find it by going to the site here and just clicking on it. And I can tell you, I won't, I can tell you, but you're not interested in it right now. If you are interested, go look it up. Third one, the burn of Columbia Valley. It's proposed establishment of the burn of Columbia Valley viticulture area. It's a 16,870 acre viticulture area located in Clickatat County, Washington, and is entirely within the existing Columbia Valley AVA. Now, if you notice, <coughs> both the White Bluffs and the Burn of Columbia Valley are within the Columbia Valley ABA already an establishment. And one of these is 93,000, almost 94,000 acres. The other one is almost 17,000 acres. And these are both within the Columbia Valley ABA. It just shows you how big the Columbia Valley ABA is in itself. I can look it up and tell you, but it just gives you ideas. You can have AVAs within AVAs within AVAs. If someone gets within this AVA that's 93,738 acres, the White Bluffs viticulture area, and they find a unique little growing area within that area that they want to designate as the 
something, whatever, they can submit that for an AV also. So then you would have that inside the White Bluffs, inside the Columbia Valley, inside the Washington State, you know, viticulture area. So it, it that's how AVAs work. You can get, get them inside and inside and inside. It's, it's very easy to... Uh, uh, very easy to do that. And another one is, let's see, is that the one? No. Let me wipe that out. And let me wipe that out and get into what I want to get into here. Uh, okay. It's, boy, I'm just... I've been bouncing around looking at stuff and reading stuff most all day today, and I've got stuff jumbled up here and so many different tabs open, and I forget what tab I have for what, and I'm losing my place. So. Okay. Uh, let's see. June. Oh. Look, that's the wrong one. Is this the tab I want? This is the tab I want. Okay. Uh, no, that isn't what I want there. I was looking at the wrong one. Boy, okay, here we go. Uh, there is for more AVAs, new, two new AVAs in Oregon. So the ones I just told you about were... California, Los Angeles, and up in Washington. Now, these are two new ones in Oregon. These are, these have been approved, it looks like here. The two new AVAs lie within the existing Willamette Valley AVA. Uh, the TTB ruling came into effect on July the 6th. Will come into effect on July the 6th. I mean, this is just a couple of days away here. Monday, this will become an official AVA. The Willamette Valley AVA now has a total of nine smaller AVAs within it. These two new ones are called the uh, Tulatin, T-U-A-L-A-T-I-N, Tulatin Hills and the Laurel Wood District. Tulatin Hills and Laurel Wood District. <clears throat> Tulsan Hill is located in north of the Willamette Valley. It's home to 33 commercial vineyards and 21 wineries. Uh, the uh, uh, Willamette Valley AVA, like I say, has a variety of AVAs in it, nine smaller ones, uh, Chilenum Mountains, Dundee Hills, Eola Amity Hills, McMinnville, Ribbon Ridge, Yamal, Carlton, and Van Duzer Corridor. These are all AVAs within the Willamette Valley AVA. Uh, Laurelwood District gained approval uh, from Ponzi Vineyards and also from Dion Vineyards. And they applied for it back in 2016 and got approval. This is located west of Portland. And it's uh, home to 25 wineries and about 70 acres of vineyards. So 
these are the two, actually two newest ones will come into official existence Monday. And then you can vote on the other three if you want those to come in. So more and more AVAs uh, popping up here. Uh, for some reason, we're just we're getting a, getting a rush of them right now, which is not unusual. There's quite a bit out there. I want to read you a little bit here about Napa's most expensive wines, because something about this list really, really caught my eye. And... If you're looking for wines that are able to return a price on investment, then you need to spend money to start with, store them properly and put them away. We've covered storing wines and all that stuff in past shows. You can look it up. I'm not going to get into it a lot now, but you can look it up and find out what is the procedures and all that. We talked about it and what you need to do. But these are the newest ones. Uh, prices is still healthy, at least from the producers, and the very top end is running in just right along the lines that they have been. It's been a fairly decent year, although not as much as it has been in the past. Uh, the world's most expensive wines would suggest that consumers have possibly reached a threshold of they didn't gain as much this past year. They've been wines have been going by uh, double digit price hikes uh, over the last um, well, several years. Actually, um, they've been increasing by double digit. This year, the top ten wines averaged just one point two four percent increase over last year. So it's thinking maybe we're at a level where. It's going to soften a little bit on these prices. It's not going to be jumping up as high as it did. Maybe, maybe not. Who knows? Uh, it's, uh, it could be different reasons, too. Uh, they've raised anywhere from 1% up to 8%, depending on the wine that's on this list here. But overall, not like the 13 to 18% that they have typically raised each year in the past. Start at the bottom. Levi and McClellan, Cabernet Sauvignon. The score 94 on this is selling for $617 if you can find it, and if they'll sell it for that. Number nine, Bryant Family Vineyard Cabernet Sauvignon. Score 95, $623. Promontory, 96, $728. Realm Sellers. The Absurd Proprietary Red, they call it, 95 on the score, $744. Screaming Eagle, the flight, Screaming Eagle's always up there. Screaming Eagle Vineyards puts out some phenomenal wines, and you're always going to pay a lot for them. Even when you find brand new, it's going to cost you a lot. Screaming Eagle, the flight, 94 score, $800. Scarecrow. Cabernet Sauvignon, 95 $803. Tusk Estate, Cabernet Sauvignon, 93 points, 846 $846. Harlan Estate, Cabernet Sauvignon, 97 score on it, 
Number two on the list, Screaming Eagle Cabernet Sauvignon, 96 points, $3,575. And number one on the list, Screaming Eagle Sauvignon Blanc. Now, doesn't that just shock you? It shocked me when I saw that. A Sauvignon Blanc is number one on the list ahead of the Cabernet Sauvignons. And there's, this whole list is basically red wines, except for number one. $6,339, 96 score. I was shocked. I was awed, I, I guess. It was. It jumped up 7% in price from last year. Last year it was going for $5,923. It went up $416. And it's, uh, the Cabernet only went up $5.00. I, it just it surprised me so much. I mean, when I read this list, that's why I had to share it with you. A Screaming Eagle Sauvignon Blanc is the most expensive wine coming out of Napa Valley this year. So who would have guessed? Who would have guessed? So uh, there you go. Those are the 10 most expensive. Yes, yeah, most definitely. Uh, definitely a cha-ching on that, without a doubt. Day after tomorrow is 4th of July. What do you do on 4th of July? You barbecue. And what do you barbecue? You barbecue anything that you can throw on the grill that will work. Well, wings. Uh, I And burgers and all sorts of stuff. Hot dogs and everything. But some wines to go with your wings and some wines to go with your burgers. Uh, I suppose hot dogs would work the same as your your uh, burgers. It depends on what you do with it. But if you're going to go wings, it's really about the sauce. More than anything else, it is about the sauce. If you're going buffalo wings, which is uh, using hot sauce and butter mixed into it, uh, pair it with some Rieslings or Vouray or Gewurztraminer, which surprised me when I read this and I said Gewurztraminer. I, I, it seemed like an odd thing, but then the sweeter wine to go with the spicier wings just might be a great combination. So try some of those, any of those three, Rieslings, Vouray, or Gewurztraminer. If you're going to go lemon pepper wings, which is great, by the way, I just really enjoy that, Get some French Sauvignon Blanc, uh, Chablis, which is uh, Chardonnay, or a dry Riesling. And actually, the key word you're matching here is lemon pepper. Here, you're looking at that lemon pairing. So if the lemon is over overabundant in the wings, then definitely pull out the uh, Sauvignon Blancs or the dry Rieslings. And... Barbecue wings. These are the ones that cans uh, that uh, most people go for. Uh, the sweeter, heavier sauces like uh, Kansas City sauce. I I am from Kansas City, and that's what I grew up on. The sweeter, heavier sauces that uh, are famous for that part of the country, Kansas City barbecue. And it is suggested here: Cabernet Franc, Tempranillo, or Carmenere. And I can definitely see a Carmenere Cabernet Franc with a Kansas City sauce with Kansas City wings. So 
that would be a great combination. I mean, the, the wings just slip and slide all over your hands and everything, and you have to have a, almost a tub of water and wipes next to you so you can take your drink of wine. And honey garlic wings. Pull yourself out some sparkling wines for that. Get some sparkling rosé or cremant or prosecco uh, to go with that honey garlic. The honey, again, is the key word there. Uh, the garlic usually doesn't overpower. Some of them do, though. I've had some honey garlics that the garlic tends to be the 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 major flavor on it. But most of the time it's not. Uh, honey is usually the carrying of the, are the garlics usually carried within the honey. Excuse me again. That's still down the wrong tube there. So, try some sparkling rosé, cremant, or prosecco for those, and that should get you through the the wings. Now, if you're going to throw some burgers on the grill, some suggestions for your different type of burger, and uh, <laughs> you can uh, here. I just chuckled at this. This this article it says if uh, someone argued that these two culinary classics are not in the same class, uh, burger and wine. If it's referring to street food versus simpler sophistication. So, but if you believe that, you're not paying attention to how versatile either one are. A wine is just spoiled grape juice. And B, you can spend $36 for a burger at 21 Club in New York, and that doesn't even include the cheese. So, you know, there's some sophistication and street food there, only the opposite direction. Awesome burger and wine pairings. If you're going to just do the burger, lettuce, tomato, onion, Cheese or not cheese, it's entirely up to you, but, you know, lettuce, tomato, onion. Most of the time, I personally can't taste the cheese unless it's a stronger cheese. Lambrusca, Grenache, or uh, a uh, Spanish Grenache. Either one of those would work with it. And you can also go a ruby port on the rocks, which is... I don't know. I wouldn't put it on the rocks myself because it would water it a little bit. Or a sangria. So get yourself your basic perfect burger and you've got yourself a, a nice pairing there with one of those. Classic cheeseburger. Uh, a Reserva Roja. A Chiante Classico. Montepulcino de Abruzzo. Uh, Australian Cabernet or a South African Cabernet. Any of those would work for you, too. So that's with the classic cheeseburger. That would give you the balance. The wines feature higher tannins, so therefore it would stand up with the uh, cheese, the cheddar cheese, and the ground beef combo. Mushroom Swiss Burger. Cool Climate Merlot. Uh, New York, New Zealand, Canada, Switzerland. A Bordeaux, a Nabeo, uh, Italian red, uh, Washington Merlot, any of those. It's a little bit lighter, a little bit fruitier. Uh, you don't want something overpowering that mushroom or the Swiss. Uh, 
Oh, that's better. I didn't choke when I took a sip of that one. So, either one of those. And a barbecue bacon cheeseburger. Uh, Lodi Zinfandel. You're getting a little bit, a little bit stronger here. An Australian Syrah or Passaropa Syrah. A French Syrah would work. Petite Syrah. Maverde. All are good wines to have with your barbecue bacon cheeseburger. So there are some suggestions to go with your burgers and wings for the 4th of July coming up in a couple of days here. And let me see. What'd you break? Okay. Uh, <laughs> I just heard glass ting and it sounded like she broke something. So those are coming. Um, those are things you can look at coming up. Uh, let's see. There's something else. If you have not signed up for it yet and you want to sign up for it or if you want to visit it, you can look at the International Canned Wine Competition. They're accepting the entries now. They have been actually for the last couple of weeks. It is going to be held uh, in uh, Boonville, California at the Mendocino County Fairgrounds. Uh, all canned beverages that contain grape wine as a component are eligible. So uh, to encourage international competition, uh, the, the competition will cover custom fees for producers outside of the United States which is a cool deal. The event is going to be three days, July 21st through the 23rd. And they're stretching out the three days. It used to be just one, but it's going to be a three-day event here so that they can social distance and be sure that people aren't too close to each other throughout the event. So the International Canned Wine Competition coming up on, uh, well, when is that? Let me look at that. I think that's only a, about three weeks away or something like that. Let's see. Today's the first one, two, yeah, three weeks away. We'll be in the middle of it. So so you do that. If you got wine, you want to submit $40 per product before June the 20th, $50 thereafter, so you've missed that deadline. And entries must arrive before July 10th. So uh, get them in if you have something you want to submit to that uh, that particular event. And let's see. Smoke tank, we cover that. Okay, got another one here that I want to cover. And let me go check this out before we talk about this spotted lanternfly for a little bit here at the end. This is oh, where's ingredient labeling it's been kicked around quite a bit, actually. It's been kicked around back and forth about ingredient labeling on wine, on wine labels. I think, personally, it's a foolish idea. You can't really put everything on there that you should put on there and that you want to put on there. Where do you draw the line? Where do you stop? If it contains this many grams of something, then it has to be included. But if it doesn't include this many grams, it doesn't have to be included. I don't know. It gets a little bit crazy. Uh, I check food labels. I you know, I read them a lot and I check them to see how many grams of fat and how many 
uh, grams of sugar and sodium it contains and all this stuff. And I'm always looking at it, but I don't think I would on wine. That's just a personal thing there. A recent article came out about uh, food labels. And uh, Adam Lee, who is a Sonoma winemaker with, uh, I don't know what winery, but he disagrees. And he has some some decent arguments about it. Uh, It says, uh, well, Blake, who is an advocate for labels, compares wine to food. He says beans, hot sauce, frozen seafood, dumpling, crackers, they all contain ingredients. But when it comes to wine, it doesn't. And he said the FDA establishes and enforces the accuracy of ingredients, and it should be the same with wines. But wine doesn't have that one standard. Labels are reviewed by the federal government, but only for accuracy, not for undefined standards. And uh, what also for undefined standards, but not anything that's written. Uh, for example, uh, the 1975 Kenwood Artist Series Cabernet Sauvignon was rejected as being indecent because of a painting of a reclining nude in a vineyard in, on the front of the bottle. And there's several other examples of it, but yet they let some of the stuff pass that you would think, wow, why would, why would that pass? Uh, when prohibition was repealed, the control of alcoholic beverages fell to the states as well. So labeling goes through federal government, but the states really control a lot of the stuff on that. You know, they collect their taxes as well as as the federal government. Well, the EU and the United States have one standard to adhere to for food, but wineries have 50 different standards here in the states alone. Each state has their own rules and regs. And the states often use these standards to raise revenue. A good example, Connecticut, and I believe Ohio does it too, but Connecticut is more expensive. Each label in Connecticut must be approved by the state at a cost of $200 per label. So if you have 10 wines, you're looking at $2,000 just for your label. So if a wine one year requires a tartaric acid addition that the label is required to carry that will be different than the year before so therefore you have to get another approval at two hundred dollars and the larger wineries can pass this on and take care of it and all that if they're shipping to connecticut but smaller wineries are well we know what happens there there are artisanal producers of wine just are always the ones that get hurt by anything like that Another example is smaller wineries would be the ones that get hurt. The Court of Federal Regulations of, say, for orange juice are, say, that virtually all orange juice sold in the U.S. is controlled by a few large companies because the smaller companies can't keep up with their rules and regulations. Successful small orange juice companies or great juice companies, they're but there are thousands of successful smaller wineries. So it's a little bit different there. You can't find a 
small orange juice or grape juice company that is successful like the big ones, but the wineries are there. Smaller wineries adjust each year to their vintage, and they have a label that is printed months in advance so that they can slap on a label. And some of them, like I did when I had the winery, I would print up labels that would be basically generic. I didn't have vintage my wines simply because you would get a much better deal if you printed so many thousands of labels at once. So you would print this many thousands of labels. If you didn't use them all, you can use them on the next bottling. And that really saved money. You just use the labels over and over as opposed to having to vintage them and have labels printed. You would not get your price break for having a bunch of them made because you would, your run would only be so many labels. And then you would have to have a new batch made the next time you bottled. So a lot of them do that and try to avoid having to print new each time. If you had labeling requirements, then you would have to be changing your labels every time you did a bottling and have to test everything that is required on that label. Uh, then there's also some additional things that you might not think about. Uh, for example, water should be listed as an ingredient because most wines are approximately 86% water. That should be the first ingredient because the way the ingredients are listed, it's whatever's in it the most should be listed first. So you would think that water would be first, but they say no, uh, he will only have water listed if the item listed was added to the wine, not if it existed in the wine. So a 16% alcohol wine with less water in it might have water listed as an ingredient, while a 13% alcohol wine with more water in it wouldn't have water listed, which leads us to argue sugar would be listed if it was added. But added sugar ferments in alcohol and doesn't remain in the wine. Therefore, dry wines would have sugar listed as an ingredient. But a wine that naturally has sugar remaining in it wouldn't have to have sugar listed. Hmm. And which leads us to the great debate of the ingredient movement. Valkyrin is the trade name for carbonate DMDC. It's a microbial agent that kills yeast, bacteria, and molds in wine and in other drinks. Valkyrin, if ingested directly, is toxic. But after a few hours, it breaks down into other purportedly harmless substances. I say purportedly as it don't I don't use it, but I have read much about it. I, I've never used it when I was making wine, by the way. That breakdown of Alcorn is why you never see it listed on bottles of sport drinks or teas or juices. Because the FDA requirements for an ingredient list require a manufacturer to list only what is actually an, an ingredient in a product. Velcron doesn't exist as an ingredient in a product after a few hours. So even though it is added to these items, it isn't listed. In this case, Blake doesn't want wine to be treated the same as food, but to be held to a higher standard than the food labels he looks at. So 
there's just some arguments against putting labels on wine, listing everything on the wine. It's like I say, where do you where do you draw the line? Where where do you stop? I am not an advocate for listing everything on the label. You say, okay, this this has this and this and this in it. I added this, but it's fermented away and became sugar or became sweet, but it turned into alcohol. So I did add sugar, but it's not present now. So do I have to put that on my label that it is is got sugar added when it's not sugar it's now alcohol and if i change this year to the next if i i'm doing something i don't know it's just such a big can of worms that's why and after i read this article i thought that's why we're probably never going to see ingredients on wine labels because of the fact that it is just so uh, vague on what is really in there and how to derive at that. You can say, okay, it's got this in it and it's got that in it. What if you use, for example, a coloring agent to make the wine darker? And wineries do this. I'm, you know, <clears throat> excuse me, I'm not going to point the fingers at anybody, but wines use, they, there's different things you can use to add to the wine to make it darker. And what they add is it's got trade names and different things like, you know, Purple 8000 and, and uh, uh, Deep Red and others, you know, different trade names out there. All it is is concentrated extract of grapes, a very high concentration of grape juice with a, usually very high bricks, very high sugar content. And you add that to your wine and it makes it darker, and you ferment, and it turns it into alcohol, and you've really added something else, say Purple 8000, but it's really not there because it's blended in with the wine and the sugars and everything have turned to alcohol, and it's just, it's, so I can go on. I am not a fan of doing labeling on it. Uh, here's an example. Ridge Winery in California uh, lists items as ingredients that aren't in their wine. They list, for example, indigenous yeast and naturally occurring malolactic bacteria. But what Ridge fails to mention on the label is that their wine is filtered. They mention on their website and on their label, which filters out the indigenous yeast and naturally occurring bacteria. So it it's, was added, but it doesn't exist in the wine. I don't know. I, I Again, I'm not a fan of wine labels. Some people say, yeah, we should have it, you know, transparency and all that stuff. I think it would just be a... a, a, a Injustice and expensive to the small winemakers. The big ones would absorb it like they do most everything. I mean, the big wineries are making it through this coronavirus with a little bit of heartache, but not closing down. And there are small wineries that are closing down because they could not survive it. So there's another thing that would affect small wineries would be 
labeling ingredients on a wine. All right, I'm going to start talking for a few minutes. Actually, I'm going to tweak your interest on the spotted lanternfly, and then we will continue it next week because I got rather wordy on some of these other things I wanted to talk about, and I didn't leave enough time for the spotted lanternfly. But let's go to the spotted lanternfly and talk a little bit about that. Uh, the spotted lanternfly is a a member of the leafhopper family. It doesn't it doesn't fly. Our plant hopper, I said leafhopper, plant hopper family, originally from China, uh, more so than anywhere, but India, Vietnam, Eastern Asia is where it came from. It has two pairs of wings, and it actually jumps more than it flies. But you look at the bug, about an inch the lower an inch in length, and it's got spots all over its wings on the back. It is kept in check in native areas by natural predators or pathogens, which, by the way, are not present in the United States. It was introduced to in Korea in 2006, which is not, I guess, they don't include that as Eastern Asian, in Korea in 2006, and has been considered a pest ever since then. But in September 2014, it was recorded in Pennsylvania. And since then, uh, since 2018, it's, it's classified as an invasive species in Pennsylvania, New Jersey, Delaware, and Virginia, and Eastern Maryland. So it's it's bad. It loves to eat grapes, stone fruits, and a whole whole list of stuff, which I'll I'll get into the list a little bit more uh, next week. It lays its eggs on just about any surface. That's why it can go so many different places and not be spotted. And it is a uh, major major pest. And it's heading for California. It's already worked its way from Pennsylvania, which I first told you about the spotted lanternfly. I guess it's been almost a year now. I first told you about the spotted lanternfly about a year ago. And excuse me, said it was in Pennsylvania. Now it's worked its way west, and they're finding some remnants of it as far west as Colorado already and it's pretty much covered all of Missouri Indiana, Illinois, Ohio and then the east coast, it's up and down the east coast quite a bit, hasn't went over the Rockies yet but it got across uh, the northern part uh, coming out of Pennsylvania and it's been sighted in California and a few spots in Oregon and Washington we will talk more about the spotted lanternfly next week. There's things I want to tell you about, the promising ways to control it, what it is doing to different areas, and how you can help if you see egg sacs or anything. And, and look for the egg sacs, too, and all that. And I'll tell you how to recognize the egg sacs and 
what to do with them if you see them. So a little bit more on the spotted lanternfly. We talked about the spotted lanternfly quite a bit on one other previous show, but I want to give you updates because it is moving across the country. And it's it, it could be could be a bad thing uh, for not just grapevines, but lots and lots of plants. So next week, uh, a spotted lanternfly and some other current and up-to-date news. So there we go. Yeah. That's always good to, you know, keep up to date because uh, things are not uh, static in the industry. That's for sure. It changes oh. uh, often, uh, whether it's, uh, you know, the location of the spotted lanternfly or the health benefits or lack of uh, in wine. <laughs> you know, yes. Oh, yeah. So you can, yeah. You, this we announced it one it week. And, yeah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Current survey or research yeah. Or list. Yeah, it's totally different than what we said last week. And, yeah, that's, uh, yeah. that's how the industry is. It's just ever-changing and oh um, yeah yeah we try to get, try to keep up point. with it this way <laughs> yeah, very good so, very good point. um let's see there was something else um yeah i i don't know why i had it in my head we were talking about the uh, glassy wing sharpshooter i put the image up on the on the scroll bar and then you oh. said <laughs> spotted lander fly and i go that's not a spotted lander fly so i got it out of there before <laughs> it didn't didn't go over but uh you know it, it was my next screen to to put on live. So, um, well, good. That's, um, we'll address that also that. when I finish up with the spotted lanternfly next week. I'll I'll address okay. a little bit about the glasswing sharpshooter because they they granted more money to the spotted wing uh, or the glasswing sharpshooter research and eradication in California, and so it's a good time to. You know, look at that again too, because that has not went away. We're still battling that. So, Ooh. wow. Yeah, um, I know. Yeah, look, look forward to that. It's uh, they're hitting us. <laughs> so yes, yes. Yeah. Uh, let's see. We got all kinds of things going. Um, it is eight oh two p.m. Eastern time on July the second, and we're gonna go ahead and close the show for this week. We'll be back next week, July the ninth at 7 p.m. Eastern time right here on blog talk radio and all of our uh, live streams out there on the three different, four different, four different uh, networks. So uh, thank you all for joining us uh, this evening and have a happy and safe uh, 4th of July and uh, weekend and uh, have a, have a great week and we'll see you all next time. Thank you. One, one other thing too, before we ended here, if you are listening to us on another format other than what Mike just mentioned, let us know. Mm-hmm. We'd like to know where we are out there and who's listening <laughs> on what formats. You know, we're always curious yeah. about that. So yeah, I know we're so on just, uh, we're on iTunes. I think is another one. And uh, yeah, it's just after that, it's like we don't know. <laughs> yeah, you know, I, iTunes, people listen to us on a lot of stuff, yeah. which is great. We don't we yeah. love that, but it's we don't know. Yeah. So. Yeah. Let us know if you can. So, let us know. Email. Yeah. Uh, all about wine one zero one at gmail dot com is the web, is the uh, address. Uh, all yeah. about wine one zero one at gmail dot com. That's the uh, email address. Yeah. Ron gets it, and um, you can let him know yeah, how you're listening to us and how you comments. To yeah, we'd like. To. Yep. Um, we'll see you all next week. All right. Thanks again. Be safe Thanks. out there on the fourth. <laughs> Have a safe week. See you next week. Thank you. 
This concludes tonight's broadcast of All About Wine with your host, Ron. For show information, links to All About Wine on Twitter and Facebook, or to be a guest on this show, visit the show website at www.allaboutwinebtr.com. Archive shows are available for download on iTunes or on our show page at blogtalkradio.com forward slash allaboutwine. Thank you for listening. Drink responsibly, and we'll see you next time on All About Wine. Thank you.